Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. And I, I am inevitable. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are starting our trek into the outer planes of D&D cosmology. I put up a poll on our Twitter account asking which of the outer planes you wanted us to start with. And the winner of that poll was Mechanus. So the clockwork nirvana of Mechanus is the first episode of our outer plane focus. Personally, I was really excited about that because Mechanus is my favorite of the outer planes. Yeah, so I was actually really excited. So I'm really, really happy that people on Twitter voted for this. My encounters with the Outer Planes were extremely limited, and I hadn't even encountered Mechanus up until we're like, hey, we're, we're doing this podcast on it. And so starting to look through it, and this place really makes my heart happy. This is actually kind of a really awesome place and it needs to spend more time on the table. It's been really underserved. Yeah. So I was really disappointed whenever I started into my research. So I started off as, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and open up the DMG first, the 5e DMG, and see what they have put into 5e for Mechanus and then start going back through the older editions. Well, it took me all of two minutes because it is two very brief paragraphs and two variant rules for when you're there. And that's the entirety of Mechanus in the 5e DMG. And so almost everything that you're going to hear from us today is going to be coming from older editions, which I think is a good thing. It is definitely something that we need to pull forward so that we have something to work with because there is a ton of lore here and a ton of flavor here that can really be incorporated pretty easily into most games and definitely in instances where you have a player who wants to play a character that has an extreme alignment shift because there are a lot of creatures, particularly the inevitables in mechanists that you can use to great effect in a storyline where you have, say, a player who wants a substantial change in their alignment or want to tinker with the actual rules of the universe. I'm all for tinkering with the rules of the universe. I will say, again, alignment, D&D has been kind of shifting away from alignment overall, and that's both a hit and miss thing. We've talked many times, particularly in our earlier podcasts, about, you know... Wow, my bridge alive. We talked earlier in the podcast how a racial type shouldn't be pinned to an alignment. An alignment, at least of good or evil, should be a choice. Now, whether you're chaotic or lawful, again, that tends to realm into personal choice as well. Though you could easily make an argument, particularly with something like Mechanist or some of the, the creatures we're going to talk about, how that is a cultural influence. You could make that argument. But 5e really is pulling back from the whole alignment issues, and that's becoming less of an aspect of the game. That said, as Ian said, these inevitables are really cool with some of that stuff. So there's still a lot that can be brought up with. I am of the opinion that alignment for player characters is it's a guideline and a tool to assist in role play. 
Exactly. It is something to help you get into the mindset of the character that you are portraying to understand how that character would react in certain situations. And you have to realize that whenever you're playing a character with a particular alignment and you are using that alignment as a guideline for your actions, that just because you are playing along to the alignment you have chosen does not isolate you from the consequences of your actions. By no means, nor does it lock you in to a specific set of actions. And I think that's some of the things that makes for good character building and stories. going to harken back, but if you've read the Game of Thrones books or even watched the series, I mean, you have your characters and they definitely had their set alignments, but they all had at least one or two major shifts from what would normally be that alignment. And that was part of their character development. And that's what made them such interesting characters. They weren't boring Enter lawful good A, well, lawful good A is always going to be lawful good no matter what. You know what? Sometimes lawful good A wanted something so bad that maybe they'd go a little bit neutral. Maybe they'd go a little bit chaotic, you know? So I think, again, as an outline, as a guide rail, alignment is great for character development. It's not locking you into place. That becomes a really stale character very quickly. Yeah, and and I really have to rail against any DM who forces a player to play their character to alignment because that's not how people work. Exactly. People mature, people develop over time. And I can tell you with great certainty that my perspective on the world now is different than it was five or 10 or 20 years ago, substantially so. And so the alignment that I would have had as a first level character, once I hit 10, 11, 12, there are certain parts of my personality that will have galvanized aspects of my alignment. And then there are certain aspects of my personality that will have shifted my perspective on my alignment. And so I may still be a lawful neutral character, but my interpretation of what law is and what neutrality is may have shifted and I may be skewing a little bit towards good or a little bit towards evil. You know, I may be finding that gray area around the borders of my law. These are all things that occur in a properly developing, realistic character. Absolutely. But all that said... That's a completely different podcast. Which That's a completely different podcast, yes. <laughs> all that said, the outer planes are the embodiment of alignments. So you have to play with alignment if you're going to play in the outer planes. It's just how the outer planes are set up and established and how they run. It is hard-boiled into the core mechanic of their identity. Exactly. As much as you're going to be dealing with heat damage and fire elementals in the elemental plane of fire, whatever this alignment of your outer plane is going to be, you are going to be dealing with the absolute platonic example of that alignment in these planes. Absolutely. And I think that's probably a big chunk of the reason why, especially the outer planes, haven't gotten a whole lot of attention from Wizards of the Coast in 5th edition is because they are trying to get away from this hard alignment lock system. And the Outer Planes just don't fit in a world where you don't have rigid alignments. I can see that, yeah. And that does make sense. Though I'm going to say that, you know, the Abyssal Planes and the Nine Hells 
gets plenty of play still just because they're flashy and that's what everybody gets to oh, see. Yeah. Well, that's because the blood war is such a major component of 5e D&D. That conflict between the demons and the devils is a huge thing in D&D and, you know, demons and devils sell. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's if you were to ask someone if they preferred devils or modrons, 99% of the time they're going to say devils because oh, absolutely. Because Modrons are kind of these weird little things that don't really have a whole lot going on unless you go back to the older editions and take a look at what they actually had going on. Yeah, absolutely. And again, as bad as it was with the whole satanic panic in the 80s, that weirdly became an odd selling point for some people for D&D as well. Going back to the concept that there's no such thing as bad publicity. So people knew of it and it kind of generated like an underground cult following. It was the hidden rebellious kind of thing to do. And honestly, that's one of the reasons why I even started looking at the game again as I got older, because I was grew up in a home where it was one of those like, oh, that was the terrible thing. As I got older, found out that my dad had actually played in the military before he had met my mom and all this stuff. So kind of weird how the whole thing cycles. But anyway, complete tangent. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. As I said, the 5e DMG really doesn't have much of anything at all regarding Mechanus. They do describe it. It is a plane of continent-sized interlocking cogs that are constantly in motion. Some of the older editions say that it's almost as if the entire plane itself is a giant machine working on some sort of algorithm. So kind of like Douglas Adams' giant supercomputer that's trying to find the question to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. So that's kind of what Mechanus is, is to yeah. an extent. And so that said, we will say Mechanus is the embodiment of lawful good. Lawful neutral. Lawful neutral, yeah, sorry. Yes. Lawful neutral. Yeah, It is a realm of pure law and order. That is what is embodied within Mechanus, is pure order. So you end up having a very sort of steampunk clockwork appearance and a lot of that same feel to it. The individual cogs of Mechanus... One of the really cool things is they have specified gravity where down is the surface of the cog, regardless of the orientation of the cog. Down is always down. Down is always the flat surface of the cog. And it doesn't matter which side of the cog you're on, if you're on the top side or the bottom side. But they do point out that without exception, they only build on one side of the cog. So there is a designated top side and bottom side. And while the bottom side still has that gravity and you can still walk across it, there's nothing on the bottom. There's only ever anything on the top. Right. And so reading about this kind of makes my heart twitter a little bit. I am the first one to say chaos woohoo. And that's a bit of a misnomer for me. I do enjoy chaos. I do enjoy things going a little bit awry. But more than chaos... I adore complexity and complexity that works and functions exactly as it's supposed to. It really sings to the chemist and the scientist in me. Everything has a little piece. It's not a simple piece. Each little piece has a dozen different aspects that can affect, you know, a neighboring thing or distant things. Think quantum mechanics, think photon entanglement, think very much clockworks or steam power. A little thing can change something so drastically far away and it seems completely unrelated, but as the rules of the realm are there 
they really all are interlinked. And that is just absolutely beautiful to me. So as I mentioned, there are two optional variant rules that they propose for visiting mechanists in 5e. The first is the law of averages, which is that whenever you're in mechanists, anytime you deal damage with an attack or a spell, you just use the average damage. There's no damage rolls. So there's no botches, there's no max damage. You just use the average damage for everything. The example that they give is if you have an attack that deals 1d10 plus 5 damage, it just deals 10 damage. So d10 is 5.5, rounds down to 5, plus 5, 10. So a 1d10 plus 5 attack will always deal exactly 10 damage. Again, I like that. I think that could grow stale over time in gameplay. It might be a good thing to do with your NPCs. And still let your characters roll the dice, depending on how you want to do that. I would definitely use this if it was a short visit. Like they yes. were going to Mechanist to get something specifically. And it's only going to be one, maybe two, three at the most combat encounters while you're there. Right, yeah, then I, I would use that. I would not use this rule if I was sending them there for a multiple session campaign arc. Yeah, probably not. Because again, that'd get really stale real fast, unfortunately. Yeah. And because we sit down at the table because we want to chuck dice. We want to hear the click of the math rocks. So <laughs> so this is a fun thing to use for brief jaunts into Mechanus, but I wouldn't use this as a routine aspect of my game if I were to spend a long time in Mechanus. The other variant rule is called imposing order. This is playing into the whole aspect that there are certain alignment-based effects that all of the outer planes can potentially have on a player character. So whenever you're in Mechanus, once a day you have to make a Wisdom saving throw, DC 10. And on a failed save, your alignment becomes lawful neutral until you spend at least 24 hours on another plane. Once you spend at least 24 hours on another plane... Your alignment goes back to normal. In the book, it says you can also magically return someone's alignment to normal with the Dispel Evil and Good spell, which kind of seems a little weird to me because it's law and chaos, not good and evil. But because they have removed all of the spells that deal directly with law and chaos from the game, that's kind of their workaround for that. I'm okay-ish with this this would be a lot more interesting in like a second edition or third edition version i don't know if it carried over in fourth edition where like your cleric spells could only be cast depending on your alignment something like that again your character's alignment other than role play and inspiration really doesn't carry near as much weight in fifth edition as it did in previous editions so i mean you could throw this on and for the most part i don't think your characters would really notice Right. This would definitely be something that you would have to incorporate into a game where you have a lot of role play heavy moments and you have to have you absolutely have to have full buy in from everyone at the table to be able to do this because they have to be willing and able to play that alignment shift should that come up. Right. Now, this could be really fun. Like if you had a character going through and like he was trying to hold like some sort of dark secret from the party. He or she was planning to like screw over the party and, and steal a bunch of loot. Or maybe they looted something and they have like a secret stash holdout or something like that. And now they pop in and they're now, you know, lawful neutral. And they go through and someone asks them a direct question. So they have to give an honest answer or whatever to that and they, where they normally wouldn't. That would be a way to play this out. 
But again, unless you had a really good table of RPers, this would be a difficult thing to pull off to much effect, I think. The scenario that comes immediately to my mind is, say, a lawful good paladin ends up having this shift, and then they end up having to act in a way that is not good. They have to act with pure law and logic and neutrality on the moral spectrum. So basically you come up with Judge Dredd. <laughs> yeah, your paladin would end up becoming Judge Dredd until they left. I don't know if that would be an improvement or not. I mean, Which, but I need not, to go back and watch that movie again. As bad as it was, I, I need to revisit it. I haven't watched the remake. I've not seen I, the remake. I was thinking the old Sylvester Stallone one. Yeah, I enjoyed that one. I mean, it is not peak cinema. It is not some great classic, but it is a fun, I think, well done film. Again, I'm going to show my age, but... It is entertaining. Yes, back in the 80s and 90s when you had the Saturday afternoon movie that popped up on regular broadcast TV and they like edited the crap out of it and, you know, so it was... Absolutely, yeah. Judge Dredd was perfect for that. I grew up with a recorded from TV copy of Short Circuit that was (laughs) absolutely fundamental to my upbringing. And then I found a copy of Short Circuit in the $5 DVD bin at Walmart and bought it and took it home and watched it and finally saw it with all of the stuff edited out. You mean stuff not edited out? (laughs) With all the stuff that had been edited out. Gotcha. And the, I can't remember his name, but the character, the Indian guy, (sighs) was a completely different character once you edited out all of his dirty jokes. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I didn't even know that these jokes were supposed to be in the movie (laughs) until I watched it again 10 years later. Yeah, that's like going back and watching the movies you watched as a child and going and watching them as a fool. That's completely different now. But again, rabbit trails. So another neat thing about Mechanist, again, that whole lawful neutral, everything is absolutely balanced. Your hot is balanced, your cold is balanced. So everything is temperate wind sun clouds so everything would be like a partly cloudy day again room temperature most likely air night and day is exactly 12 hours so if there's 12 hours of night there's 12 hours a day everything is balanced everything is perfect everything is even and so this is going to be a very temperate environment you're not going to have those harsh extremes like you are going to have on the elemental planes so you're not going to really have a hard issue of trying to survive the way to get into mechanists And again, your portals to mechanists, unlike your elemental planes, are going to be much more stable too. With certain cogs, whenever they complete their full cycle, a portal is going to open and that portal will stay open until that cog completes another full cycle. So wherever those portals are, you can count on them being there for a set time. It's not going to be something hinky like the Shadowfell or the Plane of Fire or the Plane of Air. These are definite, reliable things. If Mechanist is anything, it is reliable. Absolutely. And if I remember reading correctly, the portals open for exactly one day on the exact same position of each cog's rotation. One day or one cycle, depending on which text you read, yeah. So if the cog cycles every day, then that would make sense. Uh, I, this was with respect to a one-month cycle or whatever Okay, yeah. Whatever the whole cycle happened to be. There is one window exactly one day long on every cycle where that portal opened. Correct, yes. And there's supposed to be one portal. I think it's on the underside of the cog that has Regulus. In the very center, there's supposed to be a 
permanently open portal to the concordant opposition. So that would be the Outlands. And I think that that is the portal that opens up into Sigil. That sounds correct, yes. I may be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But it seems to me like that would be the location that it would open up to because the concordant opposition being that plane of pure neutrality where sigil is sigil would be the ideal place for that portal to open to the logical place for that portal to open to yeah again there is a lot that you can do with this place it's sadly been forgotten wizards really you need to get on the ball because there's so much that can be done here and if you're not going to then we're going to do it for you so may <laughs> yeah we, we probably will um all right, so going ahead and getting into mechanisms from some of the older editions. And also, because we're going to get to it eventually, there is the Outlands, which is this plane of neutrality that sits in the middle of the Great Wheel. Sigil sits in the center of the Outlands, and then there are 16 gate cities around the perimeter, each one of them built up around a gate to one specific outer plane the one that goes to mechanis is called automata so that is the neutrality with the slight impression of law upon it so it's it's going to be a mechanist light if you will where all of the lawful aspects of mechanis are present but they're not as rigid as they would be on the actual plane of mechanis so at the center of mechanis is the largest cog and on that largest cog is the is city it a boss of, cog it is um it is <laughs> <laughs> it's where the city regulus sits and this is where the modrons come from the modrons are this race of living constructs and they start off with these little spheres with one giant eye and a mouth and a pair of legs and a pair of arms. And they run around doing very simple things as directed, taking everything incredibly literally. And as Modrons die, the lower ranked ones slowly shuffle up through the rankings, becoming transformed into the next higher form of Modron and becoming gradually more complex as they go. So the Modrons start off as what they call a monodrone. And so they start off as a single unit, and then they go up the different case. There's two classes, one through five, and then five through ten. And as the, the higher... No. Yes. No, because there are there are actually ten rankings within the hierarchs. So it goes one, uh, ten through fifteen? It goes mono, duo, tri, quad, pentadrone. Right. That's the one that's, that's all the base ones. Right. And then once you get past pentadrone, you go into the hierarchs, which start at decaton, and then they go backwards. So nonaton, octaton, on up through until you hit to the secundus. And then the secundus, there are four of them, and they are the highest ranking modrons. And whenever the primus who is the single head of all of the Modrons, if they are destroyed or something happens, then one of the Secundus get promoted to become the new Primus. So yeah, so you've got one through five, and then you've got six through ten, because if you go to... No, then you've got ten going back up to one. Oh, so it goes all the way back down to one. All the way, yeah. Okay, gotcha. And there are 100 of the Decatons, and as you go up, the pool shrinks. So it would be the number, the number on the prefix 
squared is the number of individuals in that rank. So right. you would have a hundred of the decatons, you have eighty-one of the nonatons, you have sixty-four of the octons going on up until you hit four of the secundus. Okay, and then one of the prime. Perfect. And then yeah. one of the primus. So again, we've got our magical prime numbers. We've got mechanics. Again, all of this is working on these wonderful, super geeky aspects that, again, just kind of makes my heart twitter. But what I was going to say, and again, sorry for miscalculating the higher arcs, when one of the higher leveled or the more advanced monodrons die the one below it the next the next highest up kind of absorbs its place and then eventually a new monodron is created to take the place of what would be the lowest ranking member so they all kind of cycle in their own weird celestial reincarnating clockwork so eventually the lowest monodron if it could live long enough would eventually become prime and then theoretically if prime died then back down to monodron if something interrupted that chain then obviously back to square one to you so kind of a cool concept of how these denizens of this area work it's really interesting and then are we going to jump into the march now or are we going to pick that up later yeah let's go ahead and jump into the march so the way that everything is structured regulus is on a 17 year rotation and every 17 rotations regulus opens up and the modrons march this is kind of what the Aztecs were going for, but didn't quite get right. <laughs> I mean, it really is. If you look at their calendar, it's that great will with the rotations. And then, you know, you had the, the rotations, the rotations, and that grand rotation. Kind of what this is. So at the end of the Aztec grand rotation, the monodrones go on parade, as it were. Right. And they march through all of the planes, and most of them die because they're monodrones, and they're kind of weak and... They have no respect for local custom. (laughs) So most of them end up dying in the process. But the ones that make it back to Regulus immediately go back directly to the Primus. It's never really spelled out exactly what the purpose of the Great Modron March is or what they do once they return to the Primus. Some people speculate that it is the way that the Primus keeps tabs on what's going on in all of the other planes so that they can make calibrations to Mechanus. And there are some who think that that's the way that they learn. And there are some still that think that because whenever a Modron dies, its life energy returns to what's called the energy pool, which is in the heart of the Modron Cathedral which is what spawns the monodrones, they think that that is a way for them to learn the limitations of how the monodrones function, how the modrons in general function, and how to engineer upgrades to the modron. That's possible. I like this. Another concept I really like is, have you ever seen the movie uh, Logan's Run? That is one that I have on my list of movies that I need to watch and have not watched I am familiar with the concept. So yeah, the base concept for those that don't know with Logan's run is once you hit the age, I think it's 30, everyone on 30 goes on quote, quote, the carousel to Grand Paradise or Elysium or whatever. And they go and poof, you're gone. And I will leave it there because the carousel is not all it seems to be. I'll leave it there without spoiling it. Again, it's an ancient movie. I probably don't need to worry about spoiler alerts, but if you want to go watch it, it's a classic sci-fi. And it's based on a book, if I remember correctly. 
Uh, probably. I just remember seeing the old sci-fi again. That was one of my dad's favorites growing up. And the I think I can say this without giving too much away. The main character is about to hit that age limit and doesn't want to go. Kind of. So within the plot of the movie, there were people that were about to hit that age limit and they would try to run off and escape. And so they all had a gem in their hand that would turn a certain color when they hit that age. And he was younger and they advanced his gem to look like he was about to hit that age so he could go and figure out where everybody was running off to so they could track them down so they could take their place on the carousel because that was their duty for society. And so thus he becomes a fugitive and starts running, trying to figure out where everybody else is going to figure out where the safe spot is. Kind of like this march of the Modrons. It's kind of like that Logan's Run thing where everybody goes through. And again, as we mentioned before, if a Modron dies, then the next one kind of advances up. In a way, it's almost like give everybody that chance to advance because I'm sure the Modrons that do complete the march are mostly going to be your hierarchy, higher end, more advanced Modrons because most of your Modrons that start this march don't make it back. I don't think any of them end up will end up being a hierarchy by the end of their march. I um, would I would question the possibility of it. No, because the hierarchs don't go out on the march. Do they not? I thought all the Modrons went out. No, it's only the base Modrons that go out on the march. Okay. So you'll end up having 5 million monodrones heading out for the march. And you may end up having, you know, a couple thousand uh, tri-drones and quadrones come back. Okay. I thought all the drones went. Well, all of the drones do. That's the base. Okay. That's the monodrone up through the pentadrone. That's all the ones that are statted out in the monster manual. Okay. Then I recant that. But either way, it's still a way for for some of the lower ones to kind of advance and push where if they just stayed on mechanists, that cycling would be a lot less likely to happen. And one thing that is really interesting, there's an article in Dragon 354 where they talk about the Modrons and how the Modrons got no love in third edition and continue to get no love. But they're talking about the March of the Modrons and the Rogue March, which was when Orcus invaded Mechanus, killed the Prime, sat down in the energy pool in an effort to become Tenebrous. And by sitting down in the energy pool, he is able to command the Modron. And so what he does is he sends out all of the Modron on the march hundreds of years early. And he's sending them out specifically to hunt for the Wand of Orcus. And whenever they're all gone and they come back, I think they ended up coming back empty-handed. He just up and leaves Mechanus. But because he was there for long enough, he was able to taint the energy pool to give that little bit of evil on it. And so one of the Secundus ended up becoming tainted. And whenever the four Secundus tried to decide who was going to become the new Primus, that one refused to vote for anyone else. And so another one of the Secundus challenged it to basically a trial by combat where they would both go out for one week and slay as many chaotic creatures as they could. And whoever killed the most would win. So the good one or the untainted one waltzes over to Limbo and spends the week killing Slod like you do. Well, you know, and the tainted one decided he was going to be clever and he gathers himself up a Modron army and he waltzes into Bytopia and just starts massacring gnomes. That'll happen. <laughs> and so at the end of the week, they both come back and they have the same body count. But the other two Secundus, they don't 
acknowledge the Tainted One's accomplishments because A, he didn't do it by himself. He had his army do it. And B, he went and killed chaotic good creatures in Bytopia, which are not axiomatically opposed to Mechanus. So they ruled that it didn't count. And so he goes and rounds up his army of one million Modrons and he disappears to Acherus. So he is now sitting in his own little commune on the plain of Acherus on the eternal battlefield, forming up his army with the intent of launching an attack on Regulus to claim, you know, the seat of the Primus for himself. This whole storyline is really, really interesting. And when I was reading this, I immediately thought of Agent Smith from The Matrix. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so you had that one that just kind of like got corrupted and then started corrupting all the other agents. So you had like all the Agent Smiths. And then you had Neo, which technically would be corruption in his own right. And they're supposed to be doing, I don't know if it's Matrix 4 or a reboot of The Matrix. Supposedly Keanu Reeves is going to have a cameo or a role. I really, really hope in my deepest heart of hearts that Keanu Reeves is Agent Smith because that would be a perfect revolution that the one becomes the enforcing agent for the new cycle of everything. And again, very much ties into with this, with the Modrons and the corrupted Modrons or the rogue Modrons and that whole clockwork feel. Um, really, the Matrix could tie into this real easily. Absolutely, yes. And this is all third edition lore that we're talking about here. And what we end up getting is this whole exchange of what's going on with the Modrons plays into the larger aspects of what's going on in Mechanus as a whole in third edition. Because in Mechanus, you have the Formians, who are the giant ant people. We did a little bit on them a few episodes ago when we were talking about our town of Verdigree, and I, I did a write-up where I converted the Formians from 3rd edition to 5th edition. Yeah, those are actually one of your first conversions. Yeah, and and that was a whole lot of fun. But the Formians saw this chaos, for lack of a better term, this disunity within the Modrons, and decided to use that to their advantage to try and carve out a larger chunk for themselves within Mechanus. Well, I'm going to say that chaos is not neutrality. And so they went out to establish or reestablish neutrality. And if it just happens to be under their rules, so be it. But <laughs> Right. But they are expansionist by their very nature. And what was interesting about that particular aspect was that this was the first instance of multiple Formian queens acting in concert with one another. This was the first time that you had multiple hives actually cooperating for a common goal. Yeah. And so the Formians, again, as we've talked about, are really interesting for a long time. I like them for some lower level monsters. I think it would be really, really neat to have a giant D&D map that almost looked like a 40k map where you just had legions of Formians just lined up, you know, because you could have a bunch of like CR one half or CR ones. And if you've got a 15th or 20th level wizard who can drop some, you know, meteor strike or fireball, then yeah, you can wipe out a legion of Formians and they're still coming for you type thing. I think that would be such a fun scenario to actually do on a map. And just because once you get up to the more advanced, the more powerful Formians, you have, I think the Mirmark, which is the most powerful under the queen. They end up being like a CR 15. Yeah, so they do get up there. And the queen herself 
is somewhere between CR20 and CR24. I can't remember the actual calculations and I can't remember what she was in third edition. I know that in my translation, I ended up bumping her up a couple of ranks in the CR because of her spell list. Because she does have a lot of very substantial, very powerful spells. Like, because the Formian Queen is not going to stick around and fight you. Because if the Queen dies, the Hive dies. The Queen is going to act very much in the interest of self-preservation. So what she's going to do is she's going to drop a time stop. And then she's going to plane shift. Yeah, absolutely. That is her primary defense. She's going to drop a time stop at ninth level, stop time, use her extra turn, cast plane shift, and bamf out. Yeah, she is not slugging with you. That's not her role. She's not a xenomorph queen. <laughs> no, and playing into the whole, this is just like an actual ant queen. She's not really mobile. Right. The only way that the queen actually moves is workers pick her up and carry her. As it should be. And so that is another aspect of all of that. But yeah, these Formians are really fun creatures. And like I said, you could do a lot of really cool stuff with them. And they did not get any love. Like I said, they haven't even officially been ported to 5th edition for whatever reason. So Wizards, well, they didn't get, get on ported that. to 4th edition either. So Yeah, so seriously, Wizards, get on that. Come on. But if you want to play a ported to 5th edition one, we did that. So I will put a link to our Patreon page where I have that posted in the show notes. So that you can go and take a look at that. And then in addition to the Modrons and the Formians, the other major creature power within Mechanists are the Inevitables. And oh my god, these things are freaking amazing. Holy crap. How they have I not heard about these before? They are absolutely the greatest thing ever. The Inevitables are the reason why I love Mechanists. And with the storyline of the rogue Modrons and all of that nonsense, the Inevitables are also expanding, but they're not expanding for the purpose of seizing territory. They are expanding because they need more materials for their foundries to make more Inevitables. And so they actually have somewhat of an alliance going on now with the Modrons, which was not a thing before third edition and they actually have strongholds within regulus now where they can operate out of and there were some indications that perhaps there are inevitables that are going through the plains to collect the stranded modrons from the rogue march right to so bring them back to regulus something to consider is that when orcus like noped out of the energy pool because he didn't find his wand not all the modrons had completed the great march and so when he bamfed out of there that command or that program or whatever they run off to complete that march just stopped for the modrons wherever the hell they were so the ones that were in mechanist great they're home but everybody else they were wherever the hell they were and that was it. So they just kind of had to make do with where they were at. Yeah, that is something that didn't really get a whole lot of play up. Though I think that there was a campaign adventure line for the March of the Modrons and the Rogue March in 3rd edition. That might be something we need to revisit. I'm still tinkering with some Fae, some Fae campaign write-ups, but I think a Modron March and or some inevitable scenarios also need to be added to this list. So... The Inevitables from 3rd edition, there are five types of Inevitables, and each one is designed for a very specific purpose. First off, you have the Zelikut. 
their job is to hunt down those who seek to escape from justice. So these are literal bounty hunter constructs. Construct the bounty hunter. So that is, you have to do something pretty substantial to get onto the radar of the inevitables. But once you do, they're coming after you. Absolutely. The next one are the Kolya route. Their job is the ultimate enforcement of contracts. So if you sign an infernal contract and you break the contract, or if the devil breaks the contract, there's going to be a Kolya route coming after whoever broke the contract. I could see some Fae using these to enforce their contracts. Or maybe if a Fae tried to weasel a way out of something, I really, really want to work these in with Fae somehow. I'm not sure exactly quite how to do that yet, but these two look like would fit really well. They would probably be working on behalf of the Fae to enforce a contract as opposed to opposing a Fae creature just because of the nature of the Fae where they cannot lie. So that is something to keep in mind. So absolutely have a Fae Enforcer rocking around it just being an an inevitable. Yeah. The third one from the core monster manual and was in the Manual of the Plains. And also the only one that I've found so far to have been translated to 5th edition is the Marut. And the Marut represent the inevitability of death. And so they're going after anyone who tries to subvert or deny the grave. So they're going to go after liches. They're going to go after vampires. They're going to go after... They're going to go after people who... um, They're going to go after necromancers to an extent, if they are a substantial enough necromancer, but individuals who raise other people from the dead, like with resurrection spells, you know, especially if it's one of those cases where they're using true resurrection to revive someone who has been dead for a very long time from like a fragment of bone. Yeah. This isn't something like that. You resurrect one person all of a sudden my roots after you. This is someone that's really, really breaking the rules. Absolutely. So those are the three core ones. And then in the fiend folio, they added two more. There's the qua root. They are the defenders of time and space. So these are the ones that, if you've got a wizard that's going around using slow and haste and time stop all the time, eventually they're going to get on a Quarut's radar and they're going to come and lay the smack down. Now, looking at what I'm seeing here, they specifically say someone that tries to alter reality with wish spells. So I could see some Karut and some Ifrit's starting to slug some stuff out too. Oh yeah, just the genies in general. Yes. Which would be a good lore reason as to why the genies are so stingy with their wishes. Yeah, because they don't want to have to pay the piper at the end, you know? Yeah, absolutely. They don't want to deal with the inevitables because they know that if they abuse their innate wish-giving powers that the inevitables are coming. That's our scenario right there. Someone's knocking on the door. And maybe, okay, hear me out. Okay. This is the reason why genies only have three wishes. Oh, nice. Because when they use that third wish, that's when the Quarut comes for them. So a little bit of personal lore, but I was involved in a lab accident I worked for my junior college in the stock room. 
and there was a bit of an incident. Everyone more or less wound up being okay, but three of us got injured in an acid splash. And the college found out very matter-of-factly at that point that apparently the magic number for OSHA is four injuries. At three injuries, they can choose to come or not, but at four, it's mandatory. So we just barely slipped under that radar, which was good because as they were repairing the college, they found that they still had a bunch of asbestos in the wall and had to clear out. They were to do it on their own versus OSHA finding it and then getting fined terribly. But yeah, so apparently at the time that the incident OSHA's magic number was four. Maybe for the inevitables, the magic number is in fact four. You can cast the three, but on that third, if you cast that fourth one, they show up. <laughs> I can get behind that. All right. And then the final variant of inevitable is called the Varakut. And the Varakut are the defenders of the gods. So the inevitables are not an inherently divinity oriented race, they are living constructs. So they do have a little bit of personality, but they're mostly their programming. And the Inevitables, while they don't really adhere to divinity, they understand the importance of the gods. They understand the importance of having the gods in place. And so if you have entities that are going to go and try and kill a god, or if you have entities that are going to go and try and become a god, the Varakut are going to try and stop that. Because there is a certain amount of balance in place with the gods as they exist. And adding a god to that list or taking a god off of that list is going to upset the balance. As you saw in 4th edition when Mistara, I think it's Mistara, the goddess of magic, died. And then you had the spell plague. Right, we covered that when we covered the plane of air. Yeah, and when we were... Touching on the elemental chaos. Right. That said, if you achieve godhood, the Varakut will support you. And in this regard, it, historically, there was a group of people called the Vangarian. Was it the Vangarian Guard? The Varangian Guard. The Varangian Guard, yes. And they were very much like this. Going back, I, I should know this, but I, they guarded the Byzantine Emperor. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. They guarded the Byzantine Emperor, but more so they guarded the throne. So they were loyal to whoever sat upon the throne so if bob was byzantine emperor bob the emperor sits on the throne then the vangarian guard had his back if he was going off somewhere and someone else usurped that throne while bob was out doing whatever then they supported whoever sat on the throne it was a weird way to do it but it worked for them the byzantine empire was fairly stable for several centuries so you can't say it was too bad of a deal but yeah i definitely get that vangarian guard feel with the Veracruz. yeah the varangian guard Varangian, yes there we go and if you wanted to connect dots that may or may not be there <laughs> in the name Varakut, Varangian, maybe, maybe not. Maybe we're reading too much into it, but I like to think. Headcanon. Yeah. Worst case headcanon. And so what? Worst case headcanon. Your yes. DM, it's your world. Make it happen. <laughs> and so one thing that I wanted to go back and touch on with Modrons is they are a very rigid hierarchy because they are creatures of order. They're creatures of law. To the point that, at least for the base Modron, they only acknowledge the existence of Modron that are one cast ranking higher than them, equal to them, or one cast rating lower than them. So only a duodrone can issue orders to a monodrone because the tridrone is too complex of a creature 
for the monodrone to comprehend its orders. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I like that. That kind of has a whole brave new world feel too with the whole case system that they established. You had the alpha, the betas, gammas, or any case system really in history. I like how that works though. And it does in a weird way simplify things. And again, it's, it is that complex simplicity. Yeah. And starting off with uh, monodrones, monodrones can only do one thing at a time. They can only perform one very specific very simple action. Right. You had one job. <laughs> Absolutely. And once you get up to the hierarchs, hierarchs can communicate with any of the base. But because they are of such higher complexity, higher logical function than the base modrons, they have to be very, very careful in how they word their orders, or otherwise they are going to cross wires. And they're going to have a Modron with orders that it doesn't understand or orders that contradict orders that it has been given from another Modron. And that's where you end up getting rogue Modrons. Imagine trying to like program anything with Java using purely binary code is kind of how that breakdown would go. Yes. So for an example, let's say there's a Formian incursion and the hierarch that is aware of this sends out an order of keep the formians out of this location but going back to their basic programming the order that comes down from the pentadrone through the chain of command is kill all formians that you see because it is a very simple very basic one job at a time creature right. it has to decide whether it's going to impede their movement or kill them. And it ends up just frying their circuits, so to speak, and they end up going rogue and kind of crazy. In which case they start stabbing everything or doing nothing or something completely different depending. So yeah. And if their orders aren't specific enough, they might just go and start stabbing everything anyway. Right. Because I mean, really, if you want a crazy robot, it's going to start stabbing everything. <laughs> yeah. It really is. So that's the bulk of the creatures that you end up running into in Mechanus. Mechanus in and of itself doesn't have a whole lot of locations going for it. There are a couple of really cool ones. One that I wanted to bring up from the second edition Planescape manual is called the Jade Palace. And the Jade Palace is home to Shang-Ti, the Celestial Emperor. So think of the Forbidden City in China that sort of giant palace ground sort of feel. And there are orchards within the Jade Palace where these trees grow what are called the peaches of immortality. Apples were taken. Yeah, apples were taken. <laughs> and they are guarded constantly by foo creatures because any mortal creature that eats one of these peaches instantly has their lifespan extended by 100 years. And while this is great and a wonderful thing that you would want to try and get for yourself, that is the second most important thing here. The most important thing in the Jade Palace is the Great Library. And the Great Library is a collection of all of the knowledge from all of the material plane worlds that acknowledge the existence of the Celestial Emperor. And that's amazing. Holy crap, that's amazing. That makes <laughs> the, the Library of Alexandria look like a little pamphlet. I mean, that's... Ooh. 
And seriously, wizards, how have you not ported this? What the hell? This is amazing. You've got Candlekeep. Okay, Candlekeep was kind of fun, granted. But seriously, Jade Palace, get on it, guys. Seriously, what the hell? <laughs> right. And uh, there are a couple of other interesting creatures from older editions that I did want to bring up that would be either present in Mechanis or have that flavor, have that feel for a Mechanis sort of encounter. One that we brought up a while back whenever we had World Build With Us on were the Clockwork Horrors, which are these little clockwork beetles that have repair tasks or what have you. There are other variants that come up in the other third edition books, one of them being the Clockwork Mender, which is specifically a repair bot. Any constructs that have a semblance of sentience. So Warforged, you are definitely going to find Warforged. Really, any of your constructs are going to be fairly at home on Mechanus. Within Mechanus, or if not within Mechanus, definitely within Automata on the Outlands, which is the gate city around the gate that goes into Mechanus. But there are some other ones. One that I found, I want to say it was in Monster Manual 4. It's called the Clockroach. So imagine a cockroach robot the size of a large dog that functions as a Roomba. Oh my, a Zergling. Not quite a Zergling, but almost. (laughs) Yes, actually quite possibly a Zergling because it also spits acid. Okay, yeah, it's a Zergling. (laughs) Yeah. That would actually be closer to the drone probably than the Zergling. Zerglings were a bit more aggressive, but that would be about the proper size and defense for a drone. And the drones went around picking up crystals, so... Yeah, we've got Zerg drones. Awesome. Right. Another one from third edition, I believe, was called the Aliax. So the Aliax is described as the physical manifestation of a deity's vengeance. This harkens back to how third edition played very heavily into alignment because its purpose is to punish a god's follower from straying from their alignment failure to pay tribute, or committing a slight against their patron. You would see these with clerics a lot in 3rd edition, or at least a lot more. You you wouldn't see them so much with like a wizard or a fighter, or even a paladin, like if a paladin broke his oath or something like that, one of these would definitely pop up. Absolutely, yes. Ooh, an Oathbreaker Alix that just specifically went after Oathbreakers. Or would that be an inevitable? That would be an inevitable. That would be a Collier route because they broke their contract. Yes. But an Alix takes the physical appearance of the person it's hunting down. And it takes on a coloration based on the deity's alignment. So you end up having, let's just say that you're supposed to be lawful good and you're getting a little bit towards neutral on your morality. You're not being quite as good as you're supposed to be. Then a gold version of you is going to show up. To anyone but you, it just looks like a nondescript person of your race. But to you, it looks just like you, except for the coloration is a little bit off. And it's going to show up. It's going to tell you what you did wrong. And it's going to tell you that you're being punished. And then it's going to attack you. So this is absolutely the Greek goddess Nemesis, which is high on my list of favorites for Greek mythology. A much, much better doppelganger, in my opinion. The fun thing is it has all the same abilities and equipment that the person it's attacking does. It ignores all other assailants, and it takes no damage from anything other than you. It can only take damage from the creature it is coming to punish. I think 
and again, to kind of ramp this up would be interesting, but to have an Alex like slowly stalking a party member in a party that tends to pop up whenever the party's in combat or like the most inopportune time. Absolutely. Because yes. you could be, you know, fighting a bunch of devourers or, you know, a bunch of skellymans or orcs or whatever, and it's going to ignore them. It's going to ignore the party and it's just going to target the one character no matter what, you know? And so, you know, the character has to do something critical, has to set off a flare, has to do something, has to make a signal, has to kill the big bad evil guy and pop, Aliax pops up. Ta-da, now you have to deal with this too. That could add a lot of flavor to any any campaign yeah. or any scenario. And then another last one that I wanted to bring up from the second... The last, last one. <laughs> yeah, the last, last one. From the second edition Planescape book, there is a thing called a mediator and a variant called the translator. So the mediator, their job is to go around the plane of Mechanus and balance everything out. So they show up and they sort of shift elemental concentrations and what have you to balance everything, to bring everything into neutrality. They also go into the outlands to maintain its neutrality. They are not, I mean, they're, they're cool. Don't get me wrong. They're cool. But the really cool thing are these translators. So the translators, it's a three foot diameter ball, like a silver ball that absolutely zips. So I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the conversion rate is because I didn't play second edition and second edition movement speeds are kind of enigmas to me. What was the stat? Their movement speed is fly 64. So I think that's 64 squares. I think that's 64 squares. So that's 64 times five. No, that's 64 times 10 because one inch is 10 feet in combat in second edition okay so it has a movement speed of 640 feet which if my math is right means that it's clicking around 73 miles an hour and they act as messengers specifically messengers for the gods the gods will use them to send messages to other people on other planes and they will zip in magically discern the languages of the people they're trying to communicate with tell them the message in their language, and then zip off. Yeah, I kind of love that whole divide messenger feel to it. It's great. It really is. And the fun thing is, if they get attacked, they have one onboard weapon, which is literally a stun ray. It is a ray that hits on anything but a one on the die, (laughs) and it will stun the target for 1d12 minus three rounds. So it's basically a freeze ray. It puts them into a suspended animation until it runs out. And if they get attacked, you roll a D100. On a 1 to 99, the god sends somebody to go and see who attacked it and deal with it. On a roll of 100, you roll it again. On a 1 to 99 on that second roll, they send 1D6 of their minions to go and deal with it. If you roll 100 twice... The god shows up themselves. I like it. Because the translators carry within them knowledge of the actual functions of cosmic creation. Because these are the sorts of things that the gods are using to communicate between one another across planes. They are very protective of these things. And so they are going to deal very harshly with anyone who tries to interfere with that. Again, coming back and referencing, you know, some Starcraft, but these are pretty much like the Protoss probes. 
It's the little balls that zip around kind of, and, yeah. and zap you. So per some information on AD&D complexities, the movement is one inch equals one mile per half a day. So at a movement of 64, that means they'd move 64 miles in half a day. So they could move 120... 128 miles a day. Which is still not a bad clip. No, it's not. So 128 miles a day, but that's also assuming a 12-hour day. Uh, probably, yeah. So that's, you know, 10 miles an hour. It's still a good clip for these little things to be, to be buzzing around. Yeah, at. 10, 11 miles an hour. Okay, so that's a little more manageable, but still, that's it's still it. impressive. Yeah. So yeah, that I think that's just about got it. Most of what we were talking about with Mechanus involves the creatures living there. Yeah, Mechanus is definitely about its inhabitants and less about the surrounding. Very different than say the elemental planes, where it's much more your environment. What's there? Then who's there? Yeah, this is right. Exactly. All right, I think that pretty well does it for Mechanist today. So I'm just going to go ahead and announce what my current Patreon project is. My current Patreon project is doing basically uh, manuals for individual planes. Oh, wow. So I'm going to be starting with the plane of air and working my way through the inner planes and then do one that is just the para and quasi planes all wrapped up together, uh, talking about... You know, the sort of things that you're going to find there, the sort of creatures you're going to find there, pulling from some of the older Dragon Magazine articles, some of the environmental hazards and updating them for 5th edition. That is my current project that I'm working on for our patrons. So if you want access to that, you're going to have to become a patron on our Patreon account. Yeah, absolutely. And you can use these and run your own homebrew bring some new stuff to the table, definitely kind of break out of that whole rut where you're running that same thing all the time. This will definitely be able to help you, inspire you to to bring some new ideas out. Yeah, this was a suggestion brought to me by a friend of the show, Clark Rowanson. I am currently beta reading his book, which I'm not sure when the actual release date is going to be, but it is a book talking about how to build your own magic systems. And it's so far been really cool. So I'm really excited about that. But that was a suggestion that he made. He listened to our episodes on the planes and said, hey, just go ahead and write up something and put it up on the DMs Guild. So that's what we're going to do. And eventually, I hope to get into the outer planes as well and provide a full manual of the planes, if you will, pulling in some of the older lore from third edition and second edition and first edition in some cases and modifying that to fit within the 5e rule set and also adding some of my personal flair to it. That'll be amazing. Um, So thank you everyone for listening today. Next week's episode is going to be the second place in the poll, which is going to be Elysium, the plane of good. So that's what we're going to be covering next week. The ones after that are going to be Hades, the plane of evil, and then Limbo, the plane of chaos. Chaos, woohoo. Chaos, (laughs) woohoo. If you have any suggestions or comments or ideas for future episodes, please send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or drop us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing my Shakespearean insult page a day calendar inspired uh, role play prompts six days a week. They're going up on the Twitter account and then they're getting cross posted to the Instagram and Facebook accounts. As I have mentioned, we are now on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. I've got two articles up at the time of recording. I've got the expanded She Court 
write-up, as well as a write-up on the Ethergaunts, which were a third edition creature native to the Ethereal Plane, which are really cool, and you should check them out. Again, you can find our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible. Give us a rate and a review. That helps our visibility. So the more you interact with us, the more we can kind of figure out what you guys want to hear and bring you some new and exciting ideas. Thanks again one last time for joining us today, and we will see you again next week in Elysium. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.